Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 4, the first 17 verses. And this is picking up kind of mid-conversation between Moses and God when God has appeared to him in a bush that is on fire, but it's not burning up. And he has said that he has heard the cry of his people who are suffering uh, as slaves in Egypt, and he is going to send Moses to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And um, Moses, not so sure he wants the job. And so uh, initially he had said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said in chapter 3, verse 12, I will be with you. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we thank you that you have um, great and wonderful purposes for your creation and for your people. Lord, we ask that you would help us to, uh, to listen to your voice, to follow your lead, to trust in your ways. God, we pray that you would help us to know that your being with us is enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you and speak. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak, 
and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. Turning then to our gospel reading, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. This is shortly after uh, what we read a few weeks ago of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain where he is transfigured before them and they get to see him in his glory. And now, uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as uh, we approach our sermon text today, we are looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and a few reminders about uh, kind of where we are in this book and what this book is in general. And uh, so first reminder is that this is a book that comes at the end of the Bible for a reason, and that is because, as I've mentioned before, it has 65 prerequisites. And so it is um, a book that makes a lot more sense if you're a lot more familiar with all the books that come before it in the Bible. Uh, and so one of the things that we have been doing as we've been going through this is kind of making some of those connections, not all, but a lot of the connections back to uh, early in the Bible uh, that this is drawing from. Second uh, thing to keep in mind is that this is a, it's a revelation, and it is a book that is about Jesus, and it is from Jesus. And so this is a, a heavenly perspective on the whole world. Now, for those of you who have been really used to seeing me with a beard, and now I don't have it, you may find it difficult to look at me today, and for that I apologize. <laughs> but only because in your own mind you had kind of imagined what my face looked like under the beard, and when the beard goes away, it's like, that's not right. <laughs> And uh, if that's how you are reacting to my face, first of all, how dare you? Second of all, I'm right there with you. I find myself shocked every time I walk by a mirror now. <laughs> Who's that guy? Oh, it's me. Um, but this is uh, the same kind of thing that's going on with the book of Revelation is there's so much that uh, when we look at the world that God has created, 
and his interaction with the world, there's so much of that that gets covered up for us by so many other things. And the way that we don't get to see it for what it is, but we get to see the appearance of things. And we kind of then deduce and guess at what things must really be like under the surface, so to speak. Well, this uh, book of Revelation is kind of a shaving off all that hair, let you see what's really there. It is a removing uh, the covering of what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands and lets us see the spiritual realities behind all of this, that we get to see the world from a heavenly perspective. It is, um, it is that way of seeing what's really going on behind the scenes or beneath the surface. And, um, and so that's one of the things we're looking at. One of the things that we see in that is, of course, Jesus and how Jesus really is the center of everything, that he is the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory, and that he is the one who has um, won the victory at the cross and who also is coming again in victory, and that we are to live our lives here and now between those two dates, the day that he came and won the victory and the day that he is coming again um, in the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. And knowing that that is what has happened and knowing that that is what is going to happen ought to change the way that we live now, even with even when what we see and touch and hear make it seem like things are headed a different direction. But this is where we get back to uh, this book of Revelation and how it starts in chapter 1, verse 3, with blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And we do believe that there is a blessing for those who hear this book and who take it to heart, who actually start to live their lives in light of uh, who Jesus is, the victory that he has won, that he has secured, and... Um, yeah, and with the kingdom that has already begun, but that is coming in its fullness. And with that, we get to the, uh, the passage for today, which is part of these messages to these individual churches in Asia Minor. There were seven churches, and we talked about how John, who is writing this, is having this vision on the island of Patmos, which is... Uh, out there off the coast of the way from Asia, Asia Minor, and he is now sending this back uh, to these particular churches. And there is sort of this mail route that would go along. And so he's actually going to sort of, the messages are going church by church as you go along that path. And so this is the third church. It's the one in Pergamum. And, um, and we have seen already that there is a very familiar pattern with each of the messages to the seven churches. One of the things we've noticed is that it ends each uh, letter uh, somewhere towards the end by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so even though it's a message to that particular church, it's also a message to all the churches. And, um, and the fact that there are seven churches uh, highlights that as well, seven being a number of completeness, which we see all through the book of Revelation as well as the rest of the Bible. And uh, and with 
the messages to each of the churches, the way that then it fits with the other, every church at all times, is kind of the, if the shoe fits, wear it. (laughs) So as you read each letter to each church, the question we ought to be asking is, how does the situation that they're in and the challenge that they're facing, how does that line up with the situation that we're in, the challenges that we're facing, and what is it they're being called to do? Is that what we are being called to do? And what would that look like for them? What would that look like for us? That is um, kind of how we're approaching each of these letters. And we saw in, uh, in the first church of Ephesus that there were some, it's kind of a mixed bag. There were some good things that they had, but also some not good things. And that they were not loving God or loving others the way that they had done when they first came to Jesus. But it seems that they had, um, they had fallen pretty far from when they first came to him. With the church in Smyrna, which we looked at last week, it was uh, pretty much all good that they were being uh, encouraged to keep on keeping on because what they were doing, they were on the right track. Things were getting hard, but keep on um, being faithful, even to the point of death. And then this week, we're looking at the, the message of the church in Pergamum. And so the, the question we're going to be looking at is, you know, what, what is this church? Is this one where they get it all right or they get it all wrong or a mixed bag? And, of course, it also, uh, each one of these messages starts with a, dis, the, a depiction of Jesus, that he is the one who's speaking to each of these churches. And, uh, but as he's depicted, he's depicted in the language from the vision in chapter one of, you know, John hearing something, he turns around, he sees someone like a son of man who's among the lampstands and there's seven golden lampstands and that it talks about how those lampstands are the churches and that it, this amazing vision of this person who is both depicted as both God and man and priest and king and the judge of all. And here he is. Uh, it's the glorified Jesus who is walking among the lampstands, which is his churches, and it's he knows his churches. He knows the church uh, as a whole, and he knows each individual church uh, in particular. And this is what he also starts with in each letter. It's saying, I know what's going on with you. And we talked about how that can be good news or bad news if Jesus knows what's going on, depending on, on if um, that's something that he has asked you to do or asked you not to do. And that's what you're doing. It's like, uh, do I want him to know about it or not? Well, um, like the parable we mentioned before of, uh, that Jesus tells of those who, servants who are excited to see their master come home. And it's, it's the ones who are actually doing what the master left them to do that are excited to see him come back. And it's the ones who think he, ah, he's gone. He doesn't know what's going on. We'll just do whatever we want. They're not going to be real excited when he comes back. Well, with, uh, with each of these letters, Jesus definitely mentions that he, he knows what's going on with each church. So now we get into it. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name, 
You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Hang on. Hold on that slide there. Yeah, very good. So just looking at this part right here, how are they doing? Good? Not good? What do you think? Good, right? Uh, You remain true to my name, and you did not renounce your faith in me. That's good. And especially when you consider where they are and what's been going on there. It says that uh, twice in this passage, it talks about this being where, uh, one, where Satan has his throne, and two, where Satan lives. Well, that's probably going to be a pretty difficult place to uh, remain true to the name of Jesus, right? And to not renounce your faith in Jesus. In fact, it's so bad that it says... um, You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. And so we have, there's persecution happening that is even to the point of death. We saw last week with Smyrna that this is what uh, he had said, is be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And now we see that that's not just theoretical, that this is something that's actually happening, that there was somebody in Pergamum uh, named Antipas who had been faithful to Jesus, and it cost him his life. And that there are other people who are part of that church who see Antipas get killed because he's a follower of Jesus, who at that point could very easily be like, whoa, I'm out. No, no, I didn't realize it was going to be like this. I thought that following Jesus is the way to get ahead in this world, but clearly not. Maybe following Jesus is the way to lose your head in this world, and that's not what I'm in for. But he says, you, you had that option. You could have gone that route. You didn't. Well done. <laughs> that these are, uh, this is a church that even though times are getting particularly hard in this area um, and in their city, they have stayed faithful. Knowing now that they are doing so at the risk of their lives. That's good. That's good. Uh, as far as the what it means for Satan to have his throne there where Satan lives, I suspect this has a lot to do with the, um, the idol worship that's going on there, especially there, um, it's like on this hill, uh, as part of the city where they had a gigantic uh, like temple to Zeus that was actually throne-shaped ish. You can see it. Um, and that, that would make sense as a likely option for what it means that this is where Satan lives. That there are people who are really actively trying to get Christians to not follow Christ. And that, well, can be seen, of, uh, can be seen as the, the work of Satan. So that's all good so far how they've been handling living in such difficult circumstances. Verse 14, right, Andrew? Here we go. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, yeah, we're going to come back to that part, so 
continue, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So there's the message to the church in Pergamum. How'd they do overall? All good? No. All bad? No. This one's kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? That they're, in general, there were some things that they were doing that were really good. Uh, but there are also some issues. And it says at the end here, you know, whoever has ears, let them hear. So we're going to see how this might uh, fit with uh, who we are and where we are. But before we even get to what it is they need to do, he says, he ends this whole thing, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. What does it mean to be victorious? How is it that Christians conquer in this world and under these circumstances? What is it they are supposed to do? Call down fire on the temple of Zeus? No. Stay faithful. The same stuff that he was uh, commending them for at the beginning of this particular message of how you, you remain true to my name and you did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. This is what it looks like to be victorious. At that point, they are conquering. And it makes sense when you think about it in these terms. If what Satan is trying to do in that city is to get the Christians to deny Jesus, to not follow him anymore. And he doesn't really care how he does it. He can tempt them away with some offer that maybe they see as more enticing. Or he can uh, try to sort of inflict pain on them and suffering to the point that maybe then they're decide, well, no, maybe this is, this is too much. Threaten them with death itself. Start killing off some of them until people say, yeah, no, I'm out. They didn't really care how, you know, what reason people deny Jesus. Just as long as they deny him. Quit following him. That's the goal. And so how do you win? By still following Jesus. Like that is the victory in the face of, if if we understand that this is what the contest is, this is what the whole uh, thing has been about from the very beginning. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. The serpent comes and says, hey, why don't you just eat this fruit that God said not to eat from? And we go, well, what's the big deal about the fruit? Why is eating, you know, this one piece of fruit such a big deal? And it's because what the whole thing is about is faithfulness to God. Are we going to actually trust him and follow him or are we not? That's the contest. So how do you win? How is it that you're victorious? You continue to trust in God, stay faithful to him. uh, Despite what the world, the flesh, the devil may throw at you. Now, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. What? Anybody know what hidden manna is? It can be yours. <laughs> like, I don't know what that is. Why would I want it? Okay. So, uh, do you know what manna is? Because the people who were eating it didn't. That's why they called it manna, which means, what is it? <laughs> this is back in... Uh, 
Back in the Old Testament, when people had God had, had Moses bring the people out of slavery in Egypt, and they get out into Egypt, he has rescued them from slavery. They should be pretty excited about that. And instead, they start grumbling and complaining and going, well, I mean, sure, we were slaves back in Egypt, but at least we had food to eat. You know, out here, we're just in the desert. We're going to starve and die. No, why, why would I have gone through all that, all those plagues to bring you out? Have you the, split the Red Sea open to bring you out here and then let you die? You really think that's the plan? That is not the plan. Paraphrasing here, but you of little faith, right? And so God says, I'm going to send you bread. And he does. And it's this uh, bread from heaven kind of thing. It's this uh, thin, wafery kind of thing. They go out and they pick it up off the ground, and there's just enough for each day. And like how Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. We would trust God to provide what we need for today. And, um, and so here it says, the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And there are a couple different ways you can take this. One way is uh, there was actually some manna that was collected in like a jar and put in the Ark of the Covenant. Where is the Ark of the Covenant now? We don't know. If you go into, I think it's Second Maccabees or something, there's a place where it talks about the ark being kind of hidden away and um, and that someday the idea is that then the ark comes back out. And so maybe it's that. Or maybe it is just a way of talking about the provision of God that we don't see how that works. It's hidden. And yet, there it is. That he provides for us in ways that we can't see coming. So he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. He says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. White stone? Anyone? Excited about getting a white stone? What is that about? And again, it depends. There are actually a few things that this might be indicating. Um... One is this was a way where you'd have kind of the black stone meaning you're guilty or the white stone meaning you're not guilty in a court of law. And so it could be a way of declaring you not guilty, which that lines up with the rest of the gospel, doesn't it? That it's uh, those who are trusting and following Jesus that have the forgiveness that he has purchased for us on the on the cross. The other thing, uh, though, that it could mean is uh, it was a way of doing like a like a white stone would be used as a a ticket for entry to like a banquet. And if that's the case, that also makes sense with the rest of the uh, the gospel, where Jesus does uh, give parables about being invited to a banquet and that kind of thing. But in this case, it's also a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And people take this uh, in different ways as to whether it is uh, our name that's on there. And now he's giving us a new name, kind of like he renamed uh, Jacob to be Israel. He named Abram to Abraham. 
those kinds of things, is it that he gives us a new name? Maybe. Or is it that it is the, uh, the name of him, the one who is victorious, that we have known in, um, in weakness, who we will now know in all glory and power, much like the way that the disciples knew Jesus as, uh, you know, kind of a guy like them who could do some pretty amazing things, and then they go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they get to see him in a whole new way. Is it like that, that we actually get to see Jesus for who he really is in all his glory, and he is revealed to us that way? Maybe. There's some things later in Revelation that I think may <laughs> uh, lend to go more that direction. But either way, uh, the idea here, I think, is, uh, is similar. That in both cases, whether it's the hidden manna or the white stone with a new name written on it, in both cases, what we have here is fellowship with God. Fellowship with God through Jesus. That is what we get if we stay true, if we stay faithful. And so then now we have to look at what is the challenge that they were facing. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. These are the problems. Now, if you don't remember the story of um, Balaam, he's the guy, if you remember the talking donkey in the Old Testament, it's in the book of Numbers, that's in, that's in there. Um, that was when, that was, <laughs> Balaam is the guy, and, but he was this pagan prophet, not following the God of Israel. And a foreign king was afraid that the Israelites were going to come and wipe them out. They'd seen uh, how God was giving them this area as they came through from uh, slavery in Egypt and going to the promised land. And so this king gets a little nervous and says, all right, I'm going to hire this pagan prophet to go curse the Israelites. And so he pays him to go curse the Israelites and he tries to, and he can't. And he, every time he tries, he can only offer blessings. I was like, well, that's weird. <laughs> well, then later on, uh, the Israelites do, uh, kind of fall away. This is in numbers. Well, it actually takes place earlier, but where it's referenced specifically, with um, with Balaam is in Numbers 31. And it says, Have you allowed uh, all, the women, all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so the plague struck the Lord's people. And uh, this, this is what's being referenced here. That the people who God was continuing to bless, like you cannot... Balaam could not curse these people. And yet, they fell away themselves. He came up with a different plan. Here's what we'll do. We will send, uh, send some women among them to entice them into engaging in sexual immorality and, as a result, then idolatry and following after the gods of the foreign peoples, which worked. 
because enough people were like, yeah, I'll go along with that. Sure. And so God had to send his judgment upon the people, letting know this is not the right way. And what the message is for the church in Pergamum at this time is you're doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing. You're following the same teaching that Balaam taught, which was, hey, here's how we can destroy the people. All we got to do is get them to commit sexual immorality. All we have to do is get them to worship other gods besides the one true God. And Jesus says, repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This is how he was introduced in this letter. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. That goes back to that vision of the one who's walking among the lampstands, and he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. When uh, Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus, or writing to the church in Ephesus about uh, the armor of God, and he talks about the various parts of the armor of God. This is what you ought to put on. And he also he mentions the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this is how we see uh, Jesus bringing his judgment. It's the same as what we say with uh, Jesus as he does battle with the devil in the temptation in the wilderness. As Jesus faces temptation in the wilderness, it's the same kinds of temptation that the people faced in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. And they failed, failed, failed. And Jesus passed, passed, passed. And the way that he did it is every time quoting from Scripture is actually speaking the word of God. And that is what defeated the devil in that temptation. That is how Jesus was uh, victorious in that encounter. We see the same thing all the way through his life, even to death on the cross. And what he says here, though, is he's going to fight against them with the sword of his mouth. That his word will come in judgment against those who have turned away from him. That's not good, right? Not if you're someone who's turned away. However, this is a call to action. It is a call to repent. In other words, it's not too late. But I want you to also notice who it is that he's talking to. But this call to repent, he is not calling uh, the wider community of Pergamum who's all following after Zeus and worshiping Satan without knowing it and telling them to repent and come to follow Jesus. Do they need to? Is that a yes? But that's not who this letter is to. This letter is addressed to the angel of the church in Pergamum. It is those in the church who need to repent. It is those in the church who, though they as a whole have been doing well in following Jesus They actually, in some ways, 
have not been following him well at all. That there are parts of the church that have actually become just like the wider culture, even if they still claim the name Jesus. And when things are revealed for how they truly are, his word will show that as they've not been following him after all. So the question for us is, I mentioned before, how does this fit with us as here and now? We have uh, good things to look forward to if we are those who are in Jesus. Fellowship with God and with Jesus. On the other hand, if we're not, can't fool ourselves by thinking uh, that we can live any way we want and still look forward to sweet fellowship with him one day. It is about a life of actually trusting and following him here and now. And so the question is, how has um, the church where we live How's it gotten off track? Where are the ways that we are still staying faithful? But let's not be too quick to pat ourselves on the back and miss the plank in our own eye. It's an opportunity to repent. Repenting, by the way, is just a turning around and going a different direction. Uh, there's a great line in... Um, Mere Christianity, where C.S. Lewis says, we all want progress, but progress means getting near to the place we want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. As we've all seen this when doing arithmetic, when I've started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And, if you, and I think if you look at the present state of the world, and he was writing this decades ago, he said, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistake. We are on the wrong road, and if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. Tim Keller, in uh, a devotional uh, on Proverbs 29.1, which says, Without, whoever, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. He comments this way. He says, A stiff-necked ox or horse which would not bend its neck at the direction of the driver would be useless and even dangerous and might be destroyed. The metaphor is applied to those who are wise in their own eyes and who resist God's word and rule. Is there any hope for them? Because salvation is by faith and repentance, not our good works and performance, in one sense, anyone can at any time turn to God. There is no sin so great that it can bring damnation on those who truly repent. But a person can spiritually drift until they are too hardened to consider real repentance. While God's door to hear contrition is never shut, our window of opportunity to produce it can be. If we ever sense the impulse to repent, we should respond immediately 
and not presume in our pride that we will be capable of it at any time and place we choose. To not do so is to be stiff-necked. This is why in Hebrews, quoting multiple times the verse that says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did, or as you did in the rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This was the message to the church in Pergamum. There are some things that you're doing well, but there are some things, some ways in which your church has actually begun to drift and to join up with the idolatrous ways of the culture around you. Seek that out and turn away from it. If we do, there are great and wonderful things in store, but if we don't, um, we will not be excited for Jesus to return. The message for them is the message for us. So let us together help each other to be a church that cares more about pleasing Jesus than about pleasing one another, about pleasing uh, the eyes of this world, and let us live in relationship now with God through Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we do thank you for this message of encouragement, but also this message of, um, of challenge. God, we pray that you would help us to see that which we do not want to see, the ways that, uh, that we, even as your church, have gotten off track. Help us to see the ways that we have drifted and have unintentionally joined forces with forces we should not join. Help us to see the ways that we have intentionally gone away from you and your will, believing that we know better. Help us to see the seriousness of sinfulness. Or we ask that you would give us a desire for what is better. Give us a desire for what is good. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength and the courage and the perseverance to turn back to you and your way. We pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.